Welcome to Confidently Uncertain. My name is Erica Lascala, and I'm your host for this podcast, a podcast that discusses all things fashion forecasting. It's incredibly difficult to predict trends years in advance with many factors affecting all stages of the forecasting process. But with all of the uncertainty that comes with trend prediction, you must be able to report it confidently. With all the answers still up in the air, we're going to be talking to industry professionals to get them for you. This is Confidently Uncertain. Welcome to Confidently Uncertain. Our guest today has had plenty of experience working in the fashion industry and has seen the direction that fashion has been heading over the years. Laura DeCarafel has worked at many major publications since 2006, such as Fashion Magazine, Elle Canada, The Toronto Star, and now works as Editor-in-Chief at The Kit based in Toronto, Canada. In this episode of Confidently Uncertain, we're going to be discussing what fashion forecasting is, how it plays a role from a business perspective, the future of sustainability, and finally, how macro and micro trends affect the forecasting process. So welcome, Laura. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Erica. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy you're here too. So tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about your career in the fashion industry so far. Sure. Um, so as you said, I've been in the publishing industry related to fashion and beauty for about uh, 15 years now. Um, I started at uh, a magazine called The Look and then worked at different publications. It was an online editor of fashion. Um, I worked at Elle Canada as a senior editor and executive editor. I also started my own uh, publication called Hardly, which was a digital platform for teenage girls, uh, mostly focused around style and culture. Um, and I published a children's book called Learn to Speak Fashion with Owl Kids, which was really cute and fun to work on. And uh, for about six years, I've been the editor-in-chief of The Kit, which is the women's media brand of the Toronto Star. And at The Kit, we cover a lot of fashion, a lot of beauty, um, and a lot of culture. So we delve into home and decor, wedding, royals. Um, But our main sort of goal is to try and make every reader who comes to the site or engages with us in our print platform or on social, for them to see themselves reflected back in the publication so that um, ideally every reader feels very seen. Um, Yeah, so that's what I've been doing now for a while as the editor-in-chief. My job is really to kind of come up with a a content strategy for all of our different platforms. So to think about like what's happening in the world now, what are the trends um, that I know we're going to be talking about in a little bit, um, and also how does that kind of taking all of those products and all of those different pieces and all of those different ideas that are happening and kind of distilling it down into um, what really matters for the reader and what they need to know in order to feel engaged and kind of connected to the culture. That's amazing. I love how the kit is so focused towards the reader. It's very connecting in a way. And I feel like that's what people want to keep seeing in the future is like more relatability to what they're reading, to what they're watching, to what they're seeing. Yeah, that's great. I'm so happy that that comes across. And I think you're right that that's definitely one of the trends in publishing for sure is that there was this period of like... Absolutely, where editors were very focused on kind of telling everybody what the trends were and telling everybody what they should be paying attention to. And absolutely, you need that level of authority and expertise through which all of this can kind of be filtered. But there has been a huge movement um, that has kind of shifted that power balance. And there's more of a dialogue now between the reader and the editor. And it feels more like a kind of even playing field. Um, So we really try and kind of bring that across in, in the stories that we tell. That's amazing. 
So to start off, can you explain what trend forecasting is and what it entails? Sure. Um, So there's different ways that you can kind of define trend forecasting. There are some people who really make their living as trend forecasters um, who work for huge consulting firms and who are brought into different brands like Coca-Cola or Zara or different places like that. And they're kind of operating at a level where they're kind of looking at the culture of what's going to be new and interesting and people are going to care about for like, you know, three years out type of thing, like really kind of like forecasting the future future. And then there's trend forecasting as it relates to what um, editors do or influencers as well often, which is more kind of trying to take the temperature of the culture and trying to understand what people are talking about now, what they care about now, and then using that sort of instinct, which has been honed over a lot of years of storytelling and and paying attention to different things that are coming out. I'm going to try to tile those threads together and predict what is going to be not just what people are going to care about in terms of, you know, they're going to want serums are going to be major for people or, you know, there's a, you know, huge focus on um, dental hygiene, for example, is something that we're noticing is like a huge trend, interestingly. So like the really concrete stuff, and then also more just of a kind of general kind of vibe um, or mood, uh, which can really determine a lot of different things in terms of, you know, what you want to wear and what you want to buy, but also how you feel and how that sort of positions you, um, as just a person in society kind of paying attention to all this different stimuli. Okay. Yeah. So why do you think trend forecasting is important and how can it help build like a successful fashion brand or fashion business? It's really about listening to what people want. And that's, that is absolutely always the foundation of any kind of business. So I think just to pull back a little bit, like, one of the things that I think has really changed in the fashion industry is a little bit what I was saying before about that idea of like the editor just like telling you what's up. And really that dialogue, if there was one, was between the editor and them sort of disseminating what was happening on the high fashion runways. So say the editors who were like going to Paris Fashion Week and sitting front row at Louis Vuitton and then saying like, you know, it's it's the color white and it's athleisure and it's this bag like that you need to know about, which is very different now where um, social media has played such a big part in that. And before that, there was kind of the rise of the blogger, which again, sort of leveled the playing field and and made it a bit more that it was less like this tiny group of people kind of dictating trends or forecasting trends and having this um, larger group who were a little less like tapped into the heart of the kind of runway um, high fashion type thing. And we're bringing more of the trends really from the street, from the street, from their living room, from like what was actually in their lives. So that's had a huge influence. Um, And social media, I think, you know, has made it so much easier as a kind of platform for people to kind of understand what's happening, what's trending, what people are thinking about and how that can be kind of folded in for different brands and different companies. And it's really been interesting to see how social has been in so many ways, I think like the biggest influence on fashion in the last five years. Absolutely. I know it's crazy how like these people that are just posting what they're wearing, they're the ones dictating fashion now. Yeah, It's just crazy to me because you go from having these designers that are on runways and they're kind of like creating fashions 
but then you have the ones that are doing it out of their home and they're just like they're creating the trends it's crazy to me yeah and I think that the runways like the designers have a little bit less influence than they ever did before I think there was a period where when everything like you know you could see like brands were streaming their shows on social and so again there was that more of that democracy where people were able to kind of take that in and then respond back in terms of the trends that they were most interested in. But I think it's true. Like right now you have, like, for example, like the pandemic, there was such a movement towards, um, you know, on the runways, like this idea of like protection and armor and like a kind of military feel in some of the looks that we saw. And now like the spring um, 2022 shows are happening now. Is that right? Fall 2022. (laughs) Yeah. And it's all like, there's so much color and there's a lot of joy. And, and that's interesting in the way that designers always, I find that interesting that they're able to kind of pull together these threads and sort of put together more of a general message of what's cool and what's interesting and what's important. So I think this idea of like color and joy is something that's coming from them, but some of the specific pieces like, you know, the, or the idea of like, um, you know, the, the nineties trend being back or like that early two thousands with a low rise gene, like that is definitely coming from people and not really as, as much dictated by the runways. Absolutely. So now on the topic of designers, what do you think is a good way for designers or those starting a fashion business to get a handle on trend forecasting to grow their business? I think that the first thing, because in some ways, like as important as trend forecasting is and to be paying attention to what people want, the most important thing I think when you're starting a business is to cut out some of that noise and to think like, what is it that I want to create? Like what's my voice in all of this? As we know, there are so many brands, there's so many dresses, there's so many tops and everything like that. Like, so what is it that I'm going to be bringing to this that feels unique and that feels like there's a reason for it to exist in this like very, crowded space. Um, I think there's always room for amazing designers to exist in that space. But I think having that kind of point of view is where you begin. And then in some ways where trend forecasting can help is maybe where you're thinking about, like once you've launched and then you're thinking about expanding, then that way you can like pay attention to how people are responding to you. So if, for example, people are like, you're selling so much of this one dress and you love it. And then you notice, for example, that there's like, a puff sleeve moment that's happening that you, you notice in different places. It's like, and you can kind of balance that, you know, potentially against what you're creating and does that trend kind of make sense to fit into what you already do. But I think it's really important to never let yourself be overwhelmed by the trends that are out there. And in so many ways, actually, Erica, I I think like the idea of trends, it's like, that's the word that exists, but in some ways we almost need a different word to kind of capture what we mean when we talk about it because I think for a lot of fashion designers really the thing is to move away from trends and to really think about like to be connected to the customer and so to be you know making sure that you're being informed with what they want and and paying attention absolutely but to be thinking about you know what are some like seasonless pieces that you're creating that aren't sort of like so fluctuating and floating in the wind and the trends in some ways in a lot of ways, I think, are kind of now the domain of more of the fast fashion brands. Whereas like real designers, I think 
you know, you, you're participating in that space because how can you not? Anything you create is a bit of a statement and can be swept into a trend. But I think to think about it less as being trend-driven designing and more about like great piece designing to me feels the most modern approach. I agree. So with designers, they have to like still focus on what they want to do. Make new pieces that we haven't seen before using different silhouettes, different materials, not really things that are kind of coming back from the past because fashion is still cyclical, but designers now have to just kind of cancel that out and still focus on themselves and what they want to do. So there has to be that separation. I think so. I mean, on the other hand, if a designer is really inspired by the 80s and they love like the look of like, you know, a a sharp shouldered jacket and that's what they want to do, then I think that that's wonderful as well. It's maybe less, it's just to sort of have like something that you stand for and you can create that aesthetic. And so that people know each time when they come to you that there is an aesthetic that you've created that exists. And so it's not changing each time. Like for example, if Zara was a fashion designer, like it wouldn't make any sense at all, right? Because they do everything and it's like, whoa, it's like this, it's that, it's like all of this stuff. Like there's a reason that there's like these huge retailers and these huge brands that, that kind of, because of their, um, you know, enormity kind of have to do everything and kind of be that umbrella for everything. But I think designers do best and it's easier for them in terms of, you know, streamlining their business when they're like, this is kind of what I do. And then they grow from there for sure, but they don't try and and do it all or sort of like have every trend represented in, in their, um, collections yeah that definitely makes sense because it's like I have my aesthetic you have your aesthetic it's like everyone has their own style that they like shouldn't have to like try to do everything absolutely so you touched on like social media being a big part with bloggers influencers now so how do you feel about technology changing the industry of trend forecasting? And like, has it been beneficial? Has it not been beneficial? I think that it, it has been in the sense that almost everybody can be a trend forecaster now, if that makes sense. Like if, like we all are just because we participated in it so much. So you kind of, you can't help, I think, but notice the thing that you see multiple times repeated. And so whether you acknowledge that on like a kind of conscious level or not, like we're all kind of doing that all the time now, if we're on Instagram or TikTok or these, you know, all the different social channels or just online in any kind of capacity. I think the thing that it's maybe done, which is less positive is it's accelerated everything. So the thing that I've really noticed working in fashion is that it used to take a really long time for a trend to kind of hit, like it would hit at a certain place or be presented. And I'm thinking, this is like an old example, but I'm referencing it because it's coming back is like the gladiator sandal. Like that, like, you know, is like a thing that exists. It's like a product category, but there was a, a time when it came on like the Chanel runway and there was like that knee high gladiator sandal. This is like going back a long time, but then for it to actually kind of filter its way to like being in stores that like at Aldo or like different places where, you know, most people would access it. I, I'd say that period was like, you know, six to eight months longer. And then 
you know, and then it kind of becomes part of like the fashion conversation, you know, where it's like, it's just there. And it's like, yeah, you have a gladiator sandal. How did this even happen? You don't know. It just like, it makes sense to you now. Whereas I think now, because, you know, we see everything so quickly and there's so much visual information. I think for the eye to adjust to things like it happens so quickly and then people get so tired of things. So trends are just moving at this like lightning pace where it's like something hits and then it's like, yeah, everybody has like the cold shoulder top or everybody's, you know, has a pair of baggy jeans, but like, you know, it's not going to last for that long until that starts to look you know, very like January, 2022. And so you need to like move on to the thing that feels a bit fresher. I think there's like good things. And I think there's things that just create almost a sense of anxiety around trends, which I I don't think is ever positive. I find with social media, it's like you have the influencers that are starting these trends, bringing trends back. For example, feather hair extensions. I used to have them when I was in elementary school, maybe. And all of a sudden, TikTokers are bringing them back. And I'm like, how is this happening? It doesn't make sense to me because it's so 2014. But somehow it's happening. And that's because of these influencers who have the power to make these things trendy again. It's also, I mean, I think that's a really good example because it sort of shows the length of a trend cycle. Like to be bringing something back, it's not necessarily bringing something back from like, you know, the 1970s you know, or the 1940s, like the high fashion runways would always do like, you know, that kind of 1940s new look from Dior, et cetera. But like now it's, yeah, like referencing 2014, you know, like that's a short trend cycle to all of a sudden be considering something nostalgic and kind of bringing it back in a new way. It's a bit like Hollywood. It's the same, right? Like when you think about all the different remakes that they do, or my son is um, seven and he's into Spider-Man. So we watched like the first three Spider-Man movies and then started watching the next ones, which is like, they remade them like less than 10 years later. It's like the same character. It's so weird. And then they remade them again, you know, like, it's just like, I guess it's like when something works, it works. And then you just try and kind of reinterpret it in all these different ways. But yes, it's everything's happening very quickly. Yeah. I also find that things are moving so fast because People, especially my age, I find, we just get bored easily. We don't have the attention span to like stick with one thing for such a long period of time, especially with the generations. You just get bored and you want to change it up all the time. And I think retailers are also kind of cluing into that. And they're like, okay, this has been done. We're going to switch it up. We're going to completely change it again. Absolutely. I I think you're so right. It's like, And I mean, in some ways, like we know like the negative side of that, which like is like, you know, the sustainability question, which is just like constantly more and more stuff, more and more stuff, not ideal. But there is a flip side to that, which is like, it's fun, right? Like it's fun to like see something and be like, oh, that's cool. And I want to experiment with that or, or try it or, you know, like maybe I'll wear like blue liner and like, that's neat, you know, like, and I, it's not necessarily something I would have thought before. Maybe I won't wear it tomorrow, but I'll wear it today and like feel great with it. So I think there is like a playfulness, a a spirit to it, which is really, um, which is really lovely amidst all of the other things that are, are less lovely. So now, since we're on the topic of like generations, it's a generational thing. What do you think is currently being done to educate the next generation of mass consumers? So like ages eight to 13, and what should be done to educate the next generation of mass consumers? 
I think there has been a huge shift since the pandemic started, which again kind of came from the ground up um, in terms of shopping local. That was something that, you know, that's something that's always really mattered to me. And it's something that the kit we've tried to really bring forward this idea of, you know, trying not to shop these kind of mass fast fashion brands and and looking more to local designers who are creating absolutely amazing things. Um, and then, you know, we, we know that when everything kind of shut down, there was this like really beautiful organic momentum, momentum towards trying to like find out these amazing designers. Like, and we saw that on our site and people shopping our site that they were, you know, investing in Canadian fashion, which can be, you know, it's a bit more expensive than shopping at some of these other more sort of, you know, retailers like a Noritzia or um, Everlane. So I think, I think there's the impulse is there. I think people want it like on one hand to like, to know that in order to be a conscious consumer, like you need to be aware of it. I think, first of all, like the importance of that. And then the next step from that is like, well, then how do you actually do it? And that's the part that I think is difficult. Like, and that's the part that I think, you know, media platforms like the kit have a responsibility to do, which is to like, say like, this is how you do it. These are these amazing designers. This is like a range of prices within these designers because price is always like a, you know, a real thing that people grapple with that, you know, if something is 1999 versus being $200, like, I mean, you know, we all have to kind of accept the reality of that, like into our budgets and of what we want. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's something that we're talking a lot about as a team, like how can we, be a part of that education process in a way that feels not like you're lecturing people or not like you're kind of, you know, creating content that's like dry and boring. And it's like, I probably should read this. I really don't want to though. Like it's, I just like, it's like a duty read type thing, which we try and really stay away from. But I do think it's, it's the responsibility of people who have the kind of influence like a media brand, like the kid or other publications or influencers to kind of, educate ourselves and then try and pass that messaging along. It's hard though. Like I really do think it is difficult to tackle it because it's such a huge problem. Like really, if you were to to be a conscious consumer, it would just mean that you would hardly buy anything, you know, and you would just wear what's in your closet. And so there's that, but then like thinking about that is so difficult and kind of impossible. So what's the kind of middle ground? And I think that's, that's the space that we kind of need to try and carve out for people and, and help them shop local, help them shop Canadian, help them read a label, help them understand what the problem is and how serious it can be, like in terms of like the pollution that the fashion industry creates. I mean, it's once you start actually delving into those numbers, it's really quite shocking. So how do we see ourselves kind of in relation to that? And what is our responsibility as consumers to kind of make choices that feel good and feel right? The only other thing I would say is that, and this is something we t- we've talked about too, is there's so much pressure on individuals, too much pressure. Like there's, there's this huge, like retailers, like somebody like Azara, like how are you supposed to, as a person, as a student say, who, you know, is just starting out, doesn't necessarily have this big budget. How are you supposed to choose to make a choice that, you know, 
what you would be commended for being kind of green or conscious about. Like it's tough, right? Like the whole, everything is kind of like stacked against you really like stacked against us. It's like, because the easier choice is to go to Amazon, the easier choice is to do this. And so I, I think we need to have compassion for ourselves too. And sort of recognize that, I mean, consumers need to have compassion for themselves or recognize that, you know, to not feel guilty about it all the time. And that like, yeah, every once in a while you do need to buy like a cute crop top from Aritzia and like, it's fine. Like you might not wear it forever, but you also need to give yourself like gifts and joy within that too. And to not have fashion be this thing that is always kind of making you feel bad. You know, it's like, it's very complicated, but I I think that that's an important message that it's, it's not, it's, it can feel like it's just you and your individual consumer choice. And, and that's part of it for sure. But there are all of these huge other forces that are, are so big. And so it's not all, it's not all on you. Definitely. It's such a difficult decision because it's a balancing act. It's like, I really want to shop ethically sustainable on this side, but then on this side, it's like, oh, I haven't shopped in so long. And it's like going to the mall is so easy. It's like online shopping, so easy. It's just like at your fingertips. So it's like you regret it. But then on the other hand, it's like, was that top worth it? It's just such a balancing act because you know what you should be doing. But then on the other hand, stores make it so easy for you to access them. You don't have to pay for certain shipping from like, if it's made in Canada, it's expensive if it's made locally, but it's also not a one-of-a-kind piece, but it's a piece that you can't really find everywhere. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's a really good point. It's like, it's, it's not as if you're just going into a mall and you're like, you have the choice to shop sustainably and ethically, or you have a choice to buy this thing and it's right there in front of you. And it's like, you're just choosing between the two pieces in some ways or the two price points it's like that choice is not available it just isn't and so how do we change that kind of bigger superstructure so that we can have more ethically and sustainably made pieces available in places like malls or online in a way where it's like it's easy and you can trust that it's going to like arrive within a few days or whatever i mean that's like our expectation now right so i do think there's a lot more larger work to be done but i do think it's, it's important to still like fashion has always been about joy and it's always been about, yeah, like I haven't bought myself something for a while. So I want to like give myself a treat. Like we can't lose that, that that's never going to go away, you know, and it shouldn't like, it's, it's a lovely thing. We need to work and, and consumers a little bit, but like more so the people who are kind of working in the industry need to do the work to make it easier for people to shop local and shop ethically and sustainably. I agree. And to educate the future consumers, going back to social media, I think that could be like media publications and social media, I think are going to be some of the biggest things to influence a consumer's buying decisions. Because if an influencer tells you, go shop at Aritzia, I bought this really cute bodysuit from Aritzia, you're probably going to go buy it. So if an influencer is telling you, oh, go shop this really sustainable and ethical brand um, made here in Canada, you're probably going to go buy it. So I think like social media, media in general is one of the biggest influences to kind of convince the future consumers to shop and 
support ethically and sustainably. Totally. I mean, one thing, and just quickly, is that there is so much kind of behind the back dealing and for influencers and, and media publications too, who are like, you know, encouraged to feature their advertisers in their shopping choices that they're kind of then recommending to their readers or influencers who are being paid directly from brands or indirectly from brands or just receiving product from uh, a retailer in a way that like a Canadian designer or a more locally made brand doesn't have the budget to be sending out all these different things to people. So it is that kind of, it's like what comes by you and what's easy. And it's like, yeah, I like this bodysuit. It's genuine, like talking about it. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, it's getting there in a way that other pieces, which you might like just as much or more just realistically aren't going to come so easily across your desk. So it's, it is, I agree with you. It's like, we have to do the work to kind of make sure that we're doing the research and, and showcasing the stuff that we do feel is the best. And is, um, it also has that kind of, um, ethical and, um, Canadian component to it too, that we can. Yeah, exactly. So like whether it's climate change, biodiversity loss or plastic pollution, fast fashion is speeding up environmental destruction around the world. So is it time fast fashion moved from overconsumption to sufficiency? And what could this look like for the industry, its textile workers and consumers? I think the reality is, is that fast fashion is always going to be with us. Um, and it it is because it's providing something that people want in the sense that like it does turn thing turn quick pieces around it has that kind of trendy component and it has i think the most important thing the availability and the consistency in terms of you know you know you can order it from this site and it will be exactly the same where you go into you know a store a zara store in spain or you go to a zara store in paris or you go to a zara store in montreal and it's all going to be the same you'll get the same shirt basically. Um, so I think it like performs its role. I think maybe the place where I could comment on that more is in saying that there's this big trend in fast fashion retailers now to appear as though they're doing a lot of sustainability work. And it's not that all of that is false, um, but there's a huge, you know, that, that term greenwashing, like is, is something that is happening and the reason it's happening is positive because they these big fast fashion brands or these big kind of beauty brands who are doing it in their own different ways, talking about recycling, recyclable packaging, et cetera, are doing it because they sense that this idea of sustainability is has moved from being a trend and a buzzword to being something that is a value that's shared by society. So they know that like, you know, if somebody thinks that something is sustainable, then it's, it, or it has the appearance of being that it makes them feel good. And so they'll purchase it. So you do have, you know, retailers like H&M, for example, they have what's called their um, conscious collective collection, which has a lot of like organic cotton and stuff. And so you can like sort of stop reading there and be like, well, it's organic cotton. It's like, sure, it's organic cotton, but it's still like being produced at this kind of mass level and like how much water is being used to to create the organic cotton. Like the fact that it's organic, like how much does that really cancel out all of these other things? It's complicated, right? And, and people would have different opinions on that as to whether organic cotton matters to them versus all of these other things that, you know, are kind of side effects or byproducts of that. The thing that I've noticed that is new and is interesting potentially like 
actually could have more of an impact is that brands now are, um, and I believe it's H&M who's maybe did it first. I think Zara's doing it too, where they have resale. So for example, if you buy that bodysuit from H&M and you're like, yeah, it's great. And like, then you're tired of it six weeks later, then you can bring it back to the store and kind of donate it and they kind of resell it back. Like there's a whole, and then part of the proceeds or maybe all of the proceeds of resale go towards different environmental organizations. So there's something that's happening in the fast fashion world where I think they're recognizing that, you know, fast fashion has become this insult in a way. Like it's not a short, a shorthand for like convenient fashion. It's like a shorthand for like fashion that's destroying the world basically. And they're trying to kind of counterbalance it with measures that are both real, like potentially this resale initiative and completely just about marketing, like something like a a collection that just uses organic cotton. Yeah. So like they're conscious of it, they're conscious of their actions in a way. So uh, yeah, I've noticed that they have like their sustainability collection at H&M. It could be greenwashing, but at least they're recognizing that it is a problem. They should be addressing it. And maybe in the future, they're going to make it better. I don't know. I mean, listen, maybe. I think like they're addressing it because, not because, and this is me just being very direct, like not because they care or because they recognize necessarily that they've contributed so much to this problem. Although some individual people in the company, of course, may feel that way. Um, And I'm not just talking about like one retailer, just sort of more generally, like the reason for doing this is because they, they feel that they need to be seen to adjust for the times. And like that sustainability is something that isn't going away. So whether then they kind of respond to that with actions that are real or actions that are not is kind of, will be interesting to see. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's tricky for the consumer to know when everything is just kind of marketed at them with the word sustainability in it and just like, great. And then, but then it's on you, unfortunately, to like trace what that actually means. So even though it seems as though attitudes towards overconsumption are changing for the better, The orders for fast fashion have been skyrocketing during the COVID-19 pandemic, proving us otherwise. What do you think it will take to change the attitudes of both policymakers and consumers for the better? I mean, I don't know. I think, I think they are, the, the consumers affect the policymakers ultimately. Like that's, if there's enough of us and there's enough of us who are educated enough about what the problem is, and then what we are specifically demanding of these fast fashion retailers, then that could lead to potential real change. But I mean, you know, this is not a fashion example. It's more of a beauty example. But we've been talking about this at the kit where a lot of the different beauty brands now talk about the fact that they have recyclable packaging. But the reality is, and this is like so depressing, that if you are recycling your um so many of the the recycling plants are like privately owned. And so what is actually happening is that the recycling is being then like packaged. A lot of it, whether if you don't like clean it out properly, it just gets tossed into the trash. But in general, it just gets sent. Um, it's bought by these companies in places like India or Bangladesh. And so they're like sent over to um, these, these countries, these like huge things of are recycling and then women who are paid like $3 a day to like pick through it and see if there's anything else that can be like resold 
there. So it's like, it's just like massive, like these, these problems. I mean, and just how connected everything is and how global it all is. So I, I think it's like, I mean, I don't mean to be negative about it because I do think the positive thing is that there is, I think sustainability has become a real value um, as opposed to a trend. And that as we continue to talk about climate change and different kind of things related to the environment and, and all of the different ways that, you know, things are negatively impacted by things like fashion or other kind of choices that humans make, it will become more top of mind. But I, I think it's, it's important to know that it's, it's, it's so huge and it's so connected with, with all of these different larger, bigger kind of decisions that have been made. So I think, you know, and this is something that I can come back to you on, Erica, if you like, but, you know, we're talking at the kid about like, well, how can we help like in a real way? Like, what should we be calling for in terms of policy change? So rather than having something so general as to like shop sustainably or like, you know, shop local, think Canadian, like that kind of stuff. And it's like cool to have that. And that kind of stuff matters. But like, we need to kind of do the work to educate ourselves to be like, well, what's step number one to like really kind of address this? Like, what would that look like? And honestly, I don't know yet, you know, but I'm definitely committed to finding out. And I think the thing with fast fashion is like, you can't, it can't be sustainable. Like it's just not in its nature to be, it can be off. You can offset some of the, the damage that it does um, in the, those ways that we were talking about earlier, like, you know, potentially having resale or, you know, different things like that, where you're kind of like trying to sort of reduce the the footprint, but by its very nature, like it's just about, you create the appetite and then you just come up with a million different ways to satisfy it. There's definitely like pros and cons to everything, everything going on with fast fashion. It's not good. So do you think micro trends are destroying or enhancing people's perceptions of fashion and why? Um, it's a good question. I, I think that, I think that one person's micro trend might be someone's macro trend. Does that make sense? Like in some ways, everything right now, with the exception of being like Pantone's color of the year is periwinkle thing where it's like so mass feels a bit like a micro trend to me. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I could think about that a little bit more, but you know, I, in general, I think like, I think the more that you say, you know, it's, you need these five things this season. And if you're saying, oh, actually you need these 25 things this season, or, you know, you kind of need these 25 things like this week. And then like maybe in two weeks, you kind of need these other three things. Like the more that there are, the more probably that you identify something as a trend in doing so, you say like, it's something that you should purchase and it's something that you should be involved in. So for sure. I think it's the framing of it maybe more so than the actual thing itself, because people I think should feel very free to like whatever they want. And if they want to, you know, be excited by something, I don't think that should be like, Oh, you should only really like like five things this season or only 20 things. Like, you know, you should let yourself go and like love fashion and love everything that it represents, which is so beautiful, really kind of at its core. Um, but yeah, I could see how it, how framing things as a micro trend um, really means like buy this thing, and that um, that could have some negative consequences for sure. For sure, because I'm thinking of specific pieces, like for example, a Gucci belt. That was obviously a trend. People still wear them, still buy them. That's completely fine. 
But I find with a piece just like that, like a single piece, people put it on and it ruins the creativity of fashion, I think. It doesn't let people explore their creativity with how they can put pieces together as much. Like that's my take on like why a micro trend could destroy people's perception of fashion is because it. I think fashion is just to be creative. Wear any, like obviously wear what you like. If you like that belt, wear it, go for it. But I think people should express themselves in different ways and how like let their personality come through with their clothing. Um, I think there's no right or wrong way to fashion, but I definitely think micro trends because a store is saying this is trendy, this is cool. Like people buy it and immediately are like, oh, I'm trendy and I'm cool. So it's just like, I don't know. I think people should be more expressive with their fashion and not be afraid to express themselves through their fashion. Just because a brand is telling you this one piece, if you buy it, you're a fashion icon. Absolutely. Well, I think that actually plays in really interestingly to what we were talking about earlier, which is just everybody wants things to be easy. So it's like, okay, that's the belt, then that's the belt and I've got it. And so here I am and it's, it's great type thing. And I think also just that idea of, you know, the designers, not like if you're creating a fashion brand that you want to be thinking about what it is that you love. I think that consumers need to be thinking about that too. Like, what do I love? Like separate from all of this noise and separate from all of these other influences, what like feels right to me. And I think that changes so much, you know, like I've been talking to somebody and writing this story about like, what do clothes mean now? Like since the pandemic and since like just everything that's going on, a lot of actually related to kind of the stuff that we're talking about um, with sustainability and everything too. And I talked to the um, creative director of Uniqlo and he was saying um, that he wears a uniform and the uniform is like not a new idea. Of course, it's like come around in these multiple different ways. And I was like, maybe I'll try my own version of uniform, you know, like I'll be like only do black and white and maybe I'll, I'll like add just like wear gold jewelry and like a red lip and like these, do these things. And as I realized as much as I like the idea of a uniform, I can't do that because I feel like I get too much pleasure from trying new things and like being excited by different things whether it's a Gucci belt or whatever it kind of is. So I think you're right. Like I love that idea of just using fashion, not to be something that you feel like you have to do because it causes this anxiety that you're not participating fully or you're not cool or you're not stylish if you don't have this thing. And more so about being like, you know, what makes me feel amazing? And like, when do I feel most like myself? And I think people know that on a very intimate and kind of intuitive level, like when you're wearing something that not just makes you look good where you're like, oh yeah, like this dress fits me well, or, or this belt cinches beautifully. Um, and it's more like, like, yeah, like this makes me feel like me and I feel like confident for sure, but also just like myself. And that's so like hard to define. And it's not something that any retailer can tell you. And it's not something that any influencer can tell you. They can provide you with the options and you can be like, oh yeah, cool. I like this. I don't like that. That speaks to me. Yeah. Now wrapping everything up, we've covered most things, but to finish it off, are micro trends making the fashion forecasting process more difficult or easier and how? I think that they are making it maybe easier in the sense that it's easier to predict when something 
when there's more trends that have happened or more pieces that have kind of like risen to the level of desirability, it's then easier to predict what the next one like that will be. And then harder in the sense that because that cycle moves so quickly, it's harder to do that for, um, for like, you know, two years out or a year out even just because as we talked about, things are accelerating so quickly. One thing I'm, um, thought was interesting. We're talking at the kit right now about a story on bags and how, um, you know, there was such a trend like with the idea of like the it bag and like, it's, it's, you know, it's been so many different things like the Fendi baguette to go like all the way back to like the, um, the YFA, like puzzle bag. But what's happening now in, in fashion, because that's still a place where they kind of like reign supreme, right? Like you still have to buy designer in order to like get that actual bag. Whereas you can get the knockoffs from Zara of like the actual clothes, but the, and the shoes are kind of, you can go to Aldo and get that. Like, it's not the same kind of thing, but a bag, it's like, you got to go high fashion for that. And so these um, fashion houses are increasing the prices of the bags in these really intense ways. So the Chanel 2.55, which is like, you know, one of the iconic bags like with the, the quilted flap and everything, the price has risen by 60% during the pandemic alone. So it used to be like you could, I mean, it was always extremely expensive, but now it's like close to like $10,000 to buy one bag. So it's not about fashion at that point. You know, it's not about being like, you know, this is a trend and I like this trend. And so I'm going to participate in this trend. It's about being like, I am rich and I'm going to wear this bag to show you that I'm rich, which is a whole other interesting thing. And kind of in some ways, like I think the fast fashion or excuse me, the high fashion houses are trying to kind of in their way, obliterate the micro trend by doing that, by being like, you guys can play down here and like, we're going to do this over here. Um, So it's, you're kind of like separating people into like, you know, who can sort of participate in, you know, with these different pieces. I mean, it's honestly terrifying, but very interesting to think about. That's honestly really interesting because I've never thought about it as separating the clothing from the accessories. You're so right. Like Zara, they can do the clothing and that section. So it's interesting to think about how the luxury fashion brands are separating their accessories from fast fashion brands because you're right at that point it's not about shopping luxury i guess it's just hey i can afford this bag totally it's like what's a trend like trends don't matter money matters and i've got it on my arm (laughs) yeah no honestly that was all really interesting thank you for all of the information that you've given us about fashion forecasting and kind of like every aspect of fashion forecasting So I'd love for everyone to be able to follow your journey and projects that you're working on as well. So where can everyone find you? Um, You can find me uh, on Instagram, just my first and last name. So that's Laura DeCarafel. And then um, thekit.ca has exciting stories every day about fashion and beauty and trends. So it's a, a great place to read up. Awesome. Thank you again, Laura, for joining us. Such a pleasure, Erica. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Confidently Uncertain. Tune in next week where Katrina Henderson will be joining us to discuss the future of the consumer. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guests for joining us. You can find Confidently Uncertain on streaming platforms. You can also find us on Instagram at Confidently Uncertain Pod for staying up to date with all of the future fashion trends and inspiration. 
See you next time on Confidently Uncertain.